Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Oh boy, I'm lucky. I'll say I'm lucky. This is my lucky day. Our show is Roll Jim Crow, the racial project of the American Tobacco Company. And our guest is Nan Enstadt, author of Cigarettes, Inc., An Intimate History of Corporate Imperialism, published by the University of Chicago Press. Our opening song is Lucky Day. This is Judy Garland's version from the London Sessions of 1960. The first performance of the song was by Harry Richman in a 1926 Broadway review. Lucky Day became a theme song for the 1940s NBC radio show Your Hit Parade, which was sponsored by Lucky Strike Cigarettes. Sponsoring radio and television shows and getting celebrities to promote smoking was essential to the goal of addicting massive numbers of people to this deleterious habit, often called a choice. Al Jolson, fresh off his star turn in blackface in the 1927 film The Jazz Singer, was happy to say of Lucky Strikes that, quote, Toasting kills off all the irritants, so my voice is as clear as a bell in every scene. Folks, let me tell you, the good old flavor of Lucky's is as sweet and soothing as the best Mammy song ever written. There's one great thing about the toasted flavor. It surely satisfies the craving for sweets. That's how I always keep in good shape and always feeling peppy." Unquote. Advertising has played an immense role in helping millions enjoy the toasted delight of a cancerous death. When the FTC began to investigate the so-called health claims of the American tobacco company, it appears to have done so at the behest of U.S. candy corporations. Today's show focuses more on the way the cigarette industry shaped the form and legal structure which all corporations would follow in the U.S. One of those key forms was Jim Crow segregation effectively keeping those who knew the most about bright leaf tobacco, black farmers in North Carolina and Virginia, far away from the rewards of that expertise and instead employing them in the worst jobs in the manufacturing process. Our guest Nan Enstad is the Robinson Edwards Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the current director of the UW Food Studies Network. In addition to Cigarettes, Inc., Enstad is the author of Ladies of Labor, Girls of Adventure, Popular Culture and Labor Politics at the Turn of the 20th Century, which appeared from Columbia University Press in 1999. I interviewed Enstad in Madison at the studios of community radio station WORT. Many thanks for their hospitality. And now, Roll Jim Crow with Nan Enstad on Interchange on WFHB. Dan, let's first talk about the work you want the book to do. Um, maybe it's a kind of ruin the sacred American truths in a lot of ways, right? You say we're mired in fables of capitalism. Are there particular fables we're mired in? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I really want the book to open up a new conversation about corporate power. What I realized when I went back and looked at some of the 
the ways that people talked about corporations in the past, there's a much more critical and dynamic conversation. You know, I'm a, I, I'm a professor. I teach in the classroom. And, and I notice with my undergraduates that when they think about corporate power, they're fairly uncritical unless they've already kind of gone through a process of um, thinking about it. The default is to accept that uh, corporations are the way social change actually happens. And many of the students think, well, you know, if you want to get something to change, then you've got to get a, an important seat. Or a or a star to to kind of take up your your topic um, or your cause. So I really wanted to, and, and that goes all the way down to kind of basic assumptions that we make about kind of in the inevitability of the current capitalist system and how it works. So a lot of times I, when I was working on the book, I'd be talking to people about it, what what I was arguing, and they'd say, "But that's not realistic. You have to think about how capitalism really works." Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that we always know how capitalism really works. Well, the book tries to look at capitalism and corporate power in through one particular lens. Uh, so it's easy to know what that is because it's called Cigarettes, Inc. Mm-hmm. As we look at the title of the book, we can ask a question that talks about corporate um, – uh, What I forget the title, man. What is it? Cor- An Intimate History of Corporate Imperialism. I couldn't read the book. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't read it upside down over there. Uh, so uh, you immediately ask a couple of questions, right? What's an intimate history? And I know this is a, a, a pretty fascinating way to think about it. And you did already kind of talk about it in the way that we think of corporations as these um, – as as being represented by certain people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that So we think about Apple and Steve Jobs. We think about Bill Gates and, and Microsoft. The people that are at the head of corporations tend to be the corporation. Yeah. Uh, so what is – I guess uh, you do talk about the, the fact of corporations being more than – CEOs and boards. Yeah. And that's the intimate part of this equation. There there are more uh, souls there that, right. that are involved in, in how corporations work. But we don't think of that really. Right. Um, yeah, I, I really and, – and I do it myself that sometimes when I'm talking about the British American Tobacco Company, I talk about James Duke mm-hmm. as though he is the British American Tobacco Company. And I started thinking, why do I do that? You know, what's really going on? Who's really making the decisions? How are things really unfolding on the ground? Um, and so my book – basically tries to localize everything, mm. looks at the local process by which the corporation really developed um, in North Carolina, and then how people in North Carolina went to China to build the operation there. And so it really tells the story of the simultaneous development of the cigarette corporations um, in both places. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't get it didn't get fully formed in the United States and then go to China. It really was built by the same kind of class of guys in both places. And then you know, so thinking about the corporation, we also know that it's a social entity because we talk about Walmart workers. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about we talk about the corporation. How we know how many people it employs, um, but our tendency to personify it by the CEO, I think, is a function of of corporate personhood and some things that are embedded in the legal structure of corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have been critiquing that since the 1930s. There was a guy in the 1930s. It's like this tendency to talk about the corporation as though he's a big man. Mm-hmm. You know. Is, is part of our problem that we need to be able to see that the corporation is much more like sort of a, a being with many heads and thousands of legs right. than it is like a big man. Tobacco has, has a long history here. Yeah. And so there's not so much a corporation involved 
in that sense. Not right away. Right. right. So I really started with the origin of this new tobacco variety. Mm. Before I started this, I didn't even know there were different tobacco varieties, oh, to right. be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. But there was a brand new tobacco variety in the 1850s called Brightleaf Tobacco. And it originated in just three counties on the border of North Carolina and Virginia um, in the 1850s. And then the Civil War interrupted it. And it was a really lucrative commodity, um, agricultural commodity, because um, – uh, the way that it was cured uh, meant that it ha- was very mild to inhale. You could, you um, people didn't smoke cigarettes in the United States uh, very much yet, but they smoked pipes, and so when they would inhale, it didn't burn their throats. Mm. Um, and you, of course, you wouldn't pull a pipe deeply into the lungs, so it was especially, um, you know, kind of a harbinger of the new kind of cigarette. If you think of a Turkish tobacco cigarette, you pull, you don't, you smoke it more like a cigar. You, know, you, you don't inhale it deeply. So Brightleaf was still part of what our cigarettes are today. Hmm. Um, and so really the book is the tracing of how that single agricultural commodity developed during Reconstruction, the Jim Crow era, through this, and by tracing the social development of it through the society of North Carolina and Virginia and then it's um, and then China mm-hmm. um, it really takes a kind of on the ground approach yeah. to um, the co- the rise of the corporation in that setting so that we can see that the corporation has other structures besides the CEO the board of directors there's structures that are kind of mid-level mm-hmm. um, corporate managerial structures that are shaping the day-to-day functions of the corporation and that's where we can see um, a racial project within the corporation really taking shape. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Nan Enstad, and our show is Roll Jim Crow, about the very intentional practice of white supremacy by the corporate managers of the American Tobacco Company, and how, via corporate imperialism, that same racial project found expression in countries all over the world, most notably China. Let me ask a question first about Bright. It's interesting to imagine a new variety that allows you to actually smoke in a way that's worse for your health. Right. Right. That's that's what happens. Yes, right? exactly. A kinder, gentler cigarette becomes a more deadly cigarette. Yes, because yeah. you do inhale – with the cigarette, you do inhale it more deeply, so it makes it more dangerous. This is pre-filter, right? So, totally. Yeah. yeah so, no, nobody's thought about yeah. a filter yet. Right, yeah, so. and, and the cigarette – people didn't really start smoking cigarettes in uh, great numbers until a couple decades after the Civil War. So at first mm. it was really a pipe tobacco. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and so it was, it was not, and you can really chart, like if you look at the, the rise of this kind of bright leaf cigarette smoking, and then you look at the rise of heart disease and lung cancer, there's, you know, this like 20 year gap, Mm. right? You see that rise and then the rise follows because there's such a long, um, get long leg time with this kind of illness. So yeah, there's a guy, Robert Proctor, who says that the curing method of creating bright leaf is the most dangerous um, industrial innovation hmm. um, in history. Hmm. I'm not sure if he's right about that because be, there's so many yeah, other contenders, right? Quite a few um, but then he would kind of go to that extreme. I think it's, right. um, you know, I, uh, really kind of interesting point. But it also really changes the gestures of smoking, the style of smoking. You know, if you mm-hmm. think about Hollywood smoking and the people taking that deep inhale, you know, right. and then kind of the sexy exhale and... Right. Um, that's all dependent on Brightleaf. Yeah, well, it's an, as as your book makes clear, it's such an amazing product for all of these 
I would generally call negative aspects of life in a lot of ways, just because, um, you know, the product itself is, is deadly. Uh, the form of the corporation that it takes really becomes some, I'd say, deadly in, in a lot of ways. Um, the expansion of uh, imperial practices is deadly in a lot of ways. The Jim Crow exportation, in a sense, the hierarchies of, of structure is, is damaging to life and to people as well, uh, to communities, etc. So it's an interesting single thing to look at. I don't I'm sure there are other interesting single things as products that would probably map similarly, but it seems it seems pretty unique as a as a tiny little single thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can even march forward to uh, Michael Brown's, um, mm-hmm. you know, being strangled um, for sure. selling singles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can put that in in yeah. at the epilogue to this book if you mm-hmm. wanted to. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's. Um it would would have been that was a good idea. I should have done that. Um, partly because you know cigarettes are interesting, and part of what drew me to them in the first place is I'm really a cultural historian, so I was really interested in how people use how cigarettes are so easily branded. Mm-hmm. They become you know even though their um, nicotine is a stimulant, most people experience them as relaxing because you're breathing deeply, you're hanging out with your friends, you know, or you're taking a break. Um, They're very good at creating social communities Mm -hmm. and affiliations. Um, And then the, the kind of the, I wanted to know more about that, that um, history and it pulled me into the corporation as a whole. So I ended up doing a much bigger project than I anticipated. But I, I wanted to mention that Alan Brandt is as a medical historian. This this is not a medical history at all. Um because I feel like there's some really great medical histories already out there. So mm-hmm. I I felt like great, let, let them do that. I can do this other kind of history that people haven't had a chance to do with cigarettes because they were freaking out so much about the right. rightly so right. for, about the medical aspect. But Alan Brandt wrote um kind of the biggest one called the Cigarette Century, which I really mm. recommend. Um, um, but one thing that he says in there is he says that the tobacco companies are a rogue industry mm. because they're because they create a deadly product, then they lie about it, and they obfuscate, and they do all of these terrible things right. and all these things that you just mentioned as well. Um, but I don't think they're a rogue industry. I think that they are absolutely cut, pathbreaking. I would call them a pathbreaking mm. industry. That they're okay. kind of writing the they're writing the script mm-hmm. for. Um, racial capitalism for the ways that um, expansion should happen for mm-hmm. kind of covering your tracks in terms of co- corporate imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're fascinating to look at. Some of the legal innovations that they make, branding innovations that they make are actually really pathbreaking, but they're more standard, I think, to our culture mm-hmm. than they are a rogue industry that's somehow deviating from the norm. Mm. It's time for a break. This is Nicotine State by Susie and the Banshees, off of The Scream from 1978. More with Nan Enstad on the path-breaking success of the cigarette industry in spreading racial capitalism as a corporate form when Interchange returns. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Roll Jim Crow, about the formation and corporate imperialism of the American Tobacco Company. And our guest is Nan Enstad, author of Cigarettes, Inc., published by the University of Chicago Press. We begin with James Duke and debunking the myth of the brilliant innovator disrupting industrial practices and what that myth actually hides, the manipulations of corporate law. James Duke is a big part of the book. Chapter two, I think, is is where he really comes to the fore. But one of your points throughout is that James Duke isn't the thing that most people think, isn't the person most people think he is. I mean, he's obviously successfully um, maneuvered himself into a very high-powered and wealthy position and is seen that way and seen as one of the great great men of corporate power. And this is part of what your book tries to dismantle, basically also trying to dismantle an economic principle, which is uh, Schumpeter. I forget his first name. Joseph Schumpeter. Joseph Schumpeter has got a a theory of disruption, basically. So you want to take that on also, right? Uh, Not necessarily that disruption doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen that particular way. Right, right. right? So let's talk about the way James Duke does not actually do the things that he's supposed to have done. Because we talk about about, I mean, Lewis Ginter is is fascinating in himself, right? He's he's kind of the one that really begins this process, right? Right. So, um, you know, I didn't want to, I wasn't going to talk about James Duke at all in this book. I started with cigarette factory workers and I was not interested in the CEOs and the, I, I was going to just tell the story on the ground. That's right. kind of my shtick is right. the, the workers, farmers yeah. and consumers. Yeah. History from below. History from below, right. um, which... I can tell you my my uh, critique of that phrase if you want. <laughs> yeah, do because uh, it comes out it, 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 that I've developed in the process of writing this book actually. So so I got sucked into talking about Duke because mm-hmm. um, I read you know you read the, a million different versions of the origins of the industry. They all said the same thing that he that he um, put in the first cigarette machines that then that mechanized the industry because it used to be hand rolled cigarettes mechanized the industry was able to cut his prices. All the people all the manufacturers who we were still doing hand rolling, mm-hmm. you know, had to bow down at his feet and he made them, you know, he basically did a forced merger and created the American Tobacco Company. Well, none of that is true. And I didn't mean to find out that none of it was true. But as I was going along, I just kept noticing things that didn't fit that story. Mm. So I noticed that the first the first version of the corporation um, had another person as the head of it. Well, if Duke was so in charge and had brought everybody else to their knees, then why was this other guy the president of the corporation at first? Mm-hmm. And so I just kept finding contrary facts. And then finally, I'm like, all right, I just have to look into this. Right. And I found this guy. So this guy that is kind of the anchor of the first chapter is a mm-hmm. very interesting person, Louis Ginter, who was actually the first guy to, um, he commissioned somebody to build a cigarette machine. He was the first person to install the cigarette machine, but he was also the first person to make a success of cigarettes and he did it overseas. And mm-hmm. his the history of this has been totally erased because of the myth of Duke. Gotcha. Um, and so he, you know, he basically made cigarettes a success in the British gentlemen's clubs and that's the place of Oscar Wilde. Right. Um, and he himself was was uh, in a same-sex relationship. Um, and those clubs were same-sex clubs, mm-hmm. no women allowed. Um, and he was a, a kind of an international traveler and had been to those clubs. And so he could see the cigarette in those clubs. So there's a whole kind of queer history of the cigarette right. that comes out in looking at that. And then, yeah, so then I, I have to 
I have to dispel that myth of Duke. But I also had to think about why do we have this myth? Why, why has nobody looked at this in the last? This has been told and retold for 50 years. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of people, like you said, in North Carolina, there's a lot of grad students at Duke and Chapel Hill and uh, other places who have been going through these histories. And everybody, kind of like I was going to, just keeps repeating that myth. Except that, um, yeah. And then I accidentally found out that it was made up. So, right. so, the, so, so I have to expose the myth, but I also wanted to figure out for myself sort of why are we drawn to this story? Mm -hmm. And that's where I try to take apart that myth of, of capitalism that there's this brilliant individual who comes in and disrupts a field by putting in a, a new technology right. um, and driving down the price. Um, this is still something that we believe today, mm -hmm. um, the myth of innovation and the word innovation that we see everywhere right, around right. us. Um, so I kind of uh, take on that that story. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's an important one. I think the uh, Ginter is fascinating, and, and you already said m many fascinating things about him and the idea of the cigarette um, as a kind of uh, homosocial experience, right? Mm -hmm. The the uh, I think you used that term in the book. Yeah. So you know, and you did point out Oscar Wilde already, and and even the sort of form of rolling the cigarette, and you know, these things are much more uh, sensual pro process. No, no, I don't, you know, if you start to talk about it that way, it does sound that way, right? Mm -hmm. If I call it sensual, but it's more embodied, less industrial, you know, all mm -hmm. these things uh, are taking place in a different world entirely, mm -hmm. right? So pre-mechanization, pre-industrialization, the cigarette serving as a cultural um a unique cultural item in some ways, yeah. right? And definitely tracks, um, as you say, within those particular clubs that are, again, male-oriented or male-only. This yeah. is a social thing anyway, right? Uh, men club together, women, you know, are somewhere else. <laughs> right. right. No women allowed in their no gentlemen's clubs. Um, yeah. And they're not gentlemen's clubs like today, those kind right. of sleazy yeah. things that yeah. you see signs for. But um, no, they're, right. they're, very, they're very high class, some yeah. of them, very yeah. elite. Right. long waiting list to get on right. sit around elite, in libraries yeah, the very eliteness of it right, <laughs> right? Is, is a part of what what we begin to dismantle in a lot of ways or the attempt to dismantle the elite um, even intellectualism of certain acts and certain certain I guess groups uh, and it seems like uh, you can even paint James Duke as that kind of gruff no nonsense not a guy in a cigarette club this is Doug Storm on Interchange our guest is Nan Enstad and our show is Roll Jim Crow, about the very intentional practice of white supremacy by the corporate managers of the American Tobacco Company, and how, via corporate imperialism, that same racial project found expression in countries all over the world, most notably China. I don't reckon they hinder your health. I've smoked them all my life, and I ain't dead yet. Ginter, yeah, Ginter was um, was born in New York City, and then he moved to Richmond um, and uh, made his fortune there. So he, like, started making bright leaf cigarettes. Mm. He was the first to really make a success of that, but he lived a very urbane life. Um, uh, Duke was, you know, born in the country right, and right, stayed right. in the country for a long time, and he didn't move to New York City until he was um, well into his 20s. Mm. Um, so he just had, and then he moved to be, um, maybe he was in his 30s, actually, uh, but then he moved all right. to be, you know, kind of where the um, tobacco business was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um so, yeah, the gruffness, I don't know. You know, it's hard to, 
um, reconstruct his personality sure, because sure. there's so much lore around him. Yeah, yeah. I, I never know how much right, of that right. is actually... Well, I fell into it myself just there. I was like waxing rhapsodic about this idea of the cigarette representing a particular kind of culture. And then immediately, in a way, I think about the industrialization, the process that sort of takes it out of the personal, out of the embodied yeah, space yeah, and, yeah. and into the industrial age, right. right? Well, and I think Ginter was beginning that process because the first thing that happened, and this happened in the cigar industry too, is that they'd mechanize, mm. they, they, um, they standardized the making process before okay. they used machines. And so like we, I have also sort of a, an idea that before mechanization, everything was local and hand, mm -hmm. it was handmade, but it's like now instead of one person sitting and rolling the right. whole cigarette, they have molds and you right. do just one little piece of it. Somebody yeah. else cuts yeah. it. Piece work then. Exactly. It's the like Adam an assembly Smith's line. Uh, argument. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Becomes an assembly line. And then it's a very short, distance to mm. adding in a machine for part of the process so it's not a single right and not a single thing the way that the myth of that kind of tells us sure 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 um so so yeah i mean it's a i think it's a um what I what I learned from that, from like sort of stumbling into the Ginter story, which is a story that has to be told, you know, on the ground in his life and to understand, you know, before he went into the cigarette business, he imported goods from from Europe to sell in an import store. So that's why he had traveled in Europe so much okay. and why he understood what the cigarette markets um, people in Europe started selling smoking cigarettes before they did in the United States mm. because of the influence of Egypt um, uh, sure. and the Middle Eastern cigarette. Um, and so, and Fran France, France was also really um, an early uh, producer of cigarettes. And so Ginter, you know, just was a very urbane cosmopolitan guy at a very early age in terms of that and understood that. And I couldn't understand why he could perceive the market until I knew mm. what hit the the texture of his life mm -hmm. and what he had done. And so here's my thing about um, history from below. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that I've always thought I was somebody who did history from below. Um, and there's a historian of capitalism, Louis Hyman, who mm -hmm. is kind of famously says, you know, in the history of capitalism, we do um, history from the bottom all the way up to the top. And I've recently started thinking, you know, the problem with that is it keeps the idea of bottom and top mm -hmm. in place. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I came to kind of um, see differently in the proce pro process of doing this project. Because once I started looking at the fine fabric of like a CEO's life, mm -hmm. um, Ginter or Duke or some of these other guys who went to China, then I realized I was doing was that history of, from above or was that history from below? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it was the finely tuned daily history that I associate with history from below, but I was doing it of the people from above. And what I learned from that is that the corporate structures don't aren't created above. Mm. They're created through daily life. Mm. And if we think they're created, you know, in some boardroom in New York City, you know, or London or Paris or Tokyo or right. Beijing, we're wrong. Right. You know, we're just wrong. That's not actually that there's something that's going on there. Those right. aren't irrelevant. Right. But where sure. the corporation is actually being made and where the managerial structures that are guiding it are mm -hmm. being forged mm -hmm. is in those daily relationships, you know, that, that you have to know kind of you have to go, you know, you have to bring the camera in mm -hmm. <laughs> to close range to, in order to see those. Well, 
Well, that makes sense. If a corporation is an embodied thing, yeah, right? yeah, the the bodies make the corporation. The laws that support uh, how the corporation grows or expands or how the corporation sort of has become X can then be codified in a sense, right? right. And then captured and expanded as that thing, yeah, and grow a different way. But yeah. and this is part of the story too, is how right. how laws actually, uh, you know, do codify the way corporations run, the way they're structured and the way they're they have boards etc and things like that and then we you know we move through antitrust periods as well but all yeah. these things happen in, in a way that you can track the corporation just being a network of people doing business right right and that that becomes a thing that gets controlled by and this may be where there there is if not brilliance at least uh, you know a, aggressive strength by a guy like Duke sure yeah know? he he wasn't doing all the stuff that they said he was doing but he was doing all this other stuff Stuff. Right, you know, right. he hired a lawyer for what would have been like $1.3 million mm. a year for a salary to defend him against all of these cases that were brought against his business practices as he started to, he did grab, a, he did end up getting control of the business. And then he aggressively started to change what was the normative practices for mm. corporations and become much more, you know, it was a big power grab basically. Right. And so how he defended himself against that really expanded what corporations can do. Mm. So he was important, um, yeah. but there was a little bit of a look over there <laughs> in the history right. um, so that we would focus on him as an innovator instead of looking at what he was doing yeah. in expanding corporate power. It's time for another break. This is Smoke, 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 That Cigarette by Tex Williams. When we return, we'll look at the way corporations create ways their employees identify with their products and their work as if it was a true community of care. Stay with us. Now, it ain't cause that I don't smoke myself, and I don't reckon they hinder your health. I've smoked them all my life, and I ain't dead yet. But nicotine slaves are all the same at a petting party or a poker game. Everything's got to stop while they have that cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Puff, 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 and if you smoke yourself to death. Tell St. Peter at the Golden Gate that you hates to make him wait, but you just gotta have another cigarette. Now in a game of chance the other night, old Dame Fortune was doing me right. The kings and the queens, they just kept on coming around. Then I got a full and I bet it high, but my bluff didn't work on a certain guy. He just kept on a raising and a laying the money down. Now he'd raise me and I'd raise him. I sweated blood, I got a sink or swim. He finally called and then didn't raise the bet. I said, Ace is full, pal. How about you? And he said, Well, I'll tell you in just a minute or two, but right now I just gotta have a cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm and this is Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of Roll Jim Crow, the racial project of the American Tobacco Company, Nan Enstad tracks the intentional structure of the Jim Crow Corporation. We'll also talk about the way the black employees still found ways to be proud of their labor and identify with the corporation. One thing that I was trying to understand is, you know, um, the way we live our lives. So you, you think again about um, 
trying to back out or back into that Jim Crow space and try to understand daily life in North Carolina in a place where farming, tobacco in particular, is the thing that's going to make money. It's not going to feed you. Right? It's going to make money. So it's one of those things that we're already in this place where we're, we're operating in a way in which we're trying to do a thing in order to make money to pay for more things, mm-hmm. to pay for life, mm-hmm. rather than you know making food or whatever else we might do that we need to subsist on or, or, or live a good life locally, that kind of thing. So we're all sort of already involved in that kind of process of work for pay, work for the ability to live by paying somebody else to let us live. Mm-hmm. So like trying to track the the ways in which, you know, the cigarette in particular um, extends that, right? That kind of pulls communities into this one activity in particular, right? Mm-hmm. Make a cigarette mm-hmm. uh, and it has to be sold and you have to support it and mm-hmm. you have to, it has to be you, mm-hmm. right? A big part of this book is how people, you know, support the act of smoking, support mm-hmm. the cigarette, support the product. It is what we are. Mm-hmm. And this isn't, you know, to be black, to be white, to be a woman, to be a man. Culturally, economically, the cigarette is important mm-hmm. in those places. Just like, as I said before, just yeah. like coal would be important in West Virginia. It's right. it's necessary to your identity at that mm-hmm. point. So, you know, trying to understand the way that that, that little item becomes identity for so many people mm-hmm. is on one one hand, it kind of allows us to to just forget about the fact that that's happening. It becomes pervasive. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't even you don't even think that Duke University is what it is, or that right. you know it's it's just pervasive as the economic function. Mm-hmm. And what your book does is make the cigarette a thing again, mm-hmm. right? To look at the thing and how people use the thing, what it meant to be in relation with the thing and in relation to each other. Right. Making the thing. Right. And working through the thing. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Jim Crow, too, because it's something that you talk, I mean, that now in this culture, finally, people have talked about. It's obviously people have known about it for a long sure. time. But, but it's one of those things where we really should try to understand it as, a, as an organizing principle. I came to this project really thinking about um, cigarette factory workers in this small town in North Carolina called Reedsville, mm-hmm. um, where there's a big, big factory, small town. So mm-hmm. the ta- factory really kind of overwhelmed the town. It was the town. Right. Um, they ca- It was a lucky strike factory. They called it the lucky city. This mm-hmm. town and the factory were very, very strongly identified with each other. Um, and so it was a fascinating place to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I interviewed white and black retired factory workers. Um, that was the first thing I did in the process of writing the book. And that really did help me see how uh, how people's identities um, and how Jim Crow developed within the context of this corporation. Um, jobs at the factories were totally segregated by race and gender. Um, white guys got the best jobs at machines. Women caught the cigarettes. Um, uh, African-Americans worked with the tobacco leaf, which was hotter, dirtier work Mm. in a separate part of the factory. Um, The white side of the factory had a piano in the lunchroom. Black side of the factory didn't even have a lunchroom. Mm. So there were all these differences. And one that I found really interesting was that um, white factory workers were given a carton of cigarettes uh, at the end of the week. Okay. 
African-Americans were not given mm. cigarettes. So interesting kind of um, what we know now is that that was a very uh, two-sided perk to be getting. <laughs> right, um, right. We're actually but, helping the African-Americans. Right, right. right. Yeah. But there, what you see they're trying to do, of course, is take the prestige of the cigarette and use it to give value to the workers um, within kind of a segregated workplace and um, another kind of wage of whiteness to right, use. Right, right. Um, David Rodiger's term. And it's one of those things that, you know, we, and I'm sure this is true on some level anyway, but it's, you know, the, uh, one of the uh, currencies in, in prison systems as well. Right, which is right. another way. Well, you were talking about Michael Brown. I mean, that's the right. thing about um, cigarettes is that they're so malleable. They're so malleable to branding, mm -hmm. but they're also malleable to people grabbing them back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and creating their own meanings around them. Um, and they're also, you know, they also take on micro, uh, micro circulation as currency mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. that happens very often so the book kind of tries to get on the ground and see how so that was you know what the company tried to do is create these structures of power around cigarettes um, but how did people right. respond well, to that well let's be clear that the, that was intentional this is Doug Storm on Interchain our guest is Nan Enstad and our show is Roll Jim Crow about the very intentional practice of white supremacy by the corporate managers of the American Tobacco Company and how, via corporate imperialism, that same racial project found expression in countries all over the world, most notably China. Uh, so it's easy to think of it as being sort of a cultural um, hand-me-down almost to be racist and hierarchically white. Right. Uh, but yet to, to then realize that it's also intentional. Like yes. it's not just a thing that happens, oh, I'm white and I, I give cigarettes to white people. It's it's no, we're not selling to black people. Right. Uh, it's no, we're not branding to black people. Black mm -hmm. people are a market, so what? Right. You know, we're not going to do that. Uh, so it's, it's an important point in the book that that is intentional right. right and and so if you want to like I, I don't know if there's a specific way that you i don't recall you know a way we can uh, an, a specific example that would be useful i mean the, the the baseball stuff is interesting because that also is an intentional uh way in which a white you know team you know serves the the community slash business the lucky yeah. strike baseball team and then there's the black lucky strikes which is not affiliated right <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so so yeah to to, to kind of tell that story so you're right and i think that uh you know one one thing that the book will make very clear to anybody is that you know the racism that uh you know, we experience today is not because there's sort of a holdover from slavery, that it's embedded in the economic institutions from the Jim Crow era going all the way. And those those um, work hierarchies that I laid out of who did what job, those lasted until 1964, mm. until the Civil Rights Act was passed. And then um, the the labor union, the, the black labor union, because they were separate, right, right um, filed a an EEOC complaint and the and the factory got desegregated. But so that's a long period of time where African Americans are not only are they experiencing the intentional stigma stigma, but they've got the worst jobs. Right. Do you know they're clean there's they're pushing the broom and moving the tobacco and stripping the tobacco. They're not working at the machine jobs. And as soon as they were able to integrate the factory and they had to give African Americans machine jobs and the you know, there this was this was a unionized factory, they 
African-Americans immediately jumped into the middle class. Mm-hmm. They, those, those people who were part of that until like the early 90s when the, when the industry went down, those uh, African-Americans owned their own homes. They sent their kids to college. Right. They had pride in their work. They still had feuds in the town, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But those were the people that I was interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they had experienced that. There, the town is still incredibly racially divided, but they were able to take advantage of that mm. moment. So, um, so you really see the, you know, kind of the effect of both not having access to those kinds of jobs mm. and then what happens for mm. a short, just a generation, what people had access to it. Mm. And their kids are all over the place. Their kids are, you know, like you know, 40s and 50s, and they're all over the place Mm -hmm. doing amazing things. Um, So, but you mentioned the baseball team and Mm -hmm. the white baseball team was part of that same um, kind of paternalism in the factory so that um, the company sponsored a baseball team that they called the Lucky Strikes. And there was a really active minor league in um, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the 20s and 30s, the Lucky Strikes um, were semi-professional and they, uh, you could get a job at the factory if you could play baseball. So um, in the 30s, that became really important because it was the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of jobs. Right. Um, so lining up for a job, you know, if you could if you could pitch, mm-hmm. you know, you'd get this job. And um, one of the things that I uh, found fascinating is, you know, like I um, found guys who played for four or five years for the Lucky Strikes in the 1930s, and they worked at the factory for 45 years, mm-hmm. you know. Right. They, so the job was the more lucrative thing right. um, than, the, than the baseball gig. Um, but then they became sort of stars of the factory, mm-hmm. do you know, and of the town. Mm-hmm. They, they were very, um, and they got free cigarettes and they right. got these great, un, you know, uniforms and everything paid for by the company. African-Americans not allowed, right? Right, right? But then it was so fascinating because I met one of the, I met this guy and was interviewing him, um, found him just through word of mouth through mm-hmm. other people. This is William Davis? Yeah. Yeah. William Davis, and we were talking his wife, Ruth Davis, and we were talking and he said, well, I was on the Lucky Strikes. Mm. And I was, he was in his 80s at that time. So I, he pulled out his pictures and, uh, you know, his hat and everything and told me all these stories about being on the Black Lucky Strikes. Right. But um, the black team was funded by black businesses, mm-hmm. but they still called themselves the Black Lucky Strikes mm-hmm. or the Lucky Strikes. They mm-hmm. also were called the Lucky Strikes. Right. And the only thing that the, di- the company did to support them is it did give them free cigarettes to take to the games. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that was a... a you know, a very interesting kind of appropriation, mm-hmm. I thought, mm-hmm. of appropriating the brand name back mm-hmm. from the white part of town. Mm-hmm. Do you know, because the brand Lucky Strike was so associated with whiteness, like you said, they would not market, no tobacco company marketed to African-Americans until World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, they would not market to them. They would not, they did not want their, even though they had a lot of black employees, they did not want their cigarette associated with blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the white people really owned the brand and owned the factory and kind of controlled that right. culturally and economically. Um, so for the African-American team to call themselves the Lucky Strikes and to use the brand, Mm. you know, I really saw that as an appropriation Mm. 
It's interesting. Like it's uh, it's one thing that's kind of hard to get your head around. You know, would you wouldn't you want to you know make something else out, out of it? But at the same time, it, even if it's the bad job that you had, it is the job you had. You were, I mean, these well, were those still, were the best jobs. Yeah, for African Americans, right, they were right. still the best jobs They're in town. Still lucky strike jobs. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you're still identified and identify with the corporation. Right. So it's not and it's not an anti corporate move. Right. Right? right. right. But it is a really uh, as. Um, Mr. Davis would regularly say to me, he'd say, um, we had our own mm. team. We had our own drugstore. Mm. We had our own newspapers. Right. Um, and that was Jim Crow, right? right? Sure. Um, but it was also sort of a pride. We had our right. own high school, mm-hmm. you know? And it was like this, we are going to take pride in this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, we're going to reappropriate mm. um, the value there. Sure. It's time for our final break. This is Last Cigarette by Drama Rama from the 1989 album Live at the China Club. When we return, we'll look at how the British American Tobacco Company used debt in China to create a version of Jim Crow era sharecropping. You're not responding right, I guess I better start again Well, it's pretend this fella's hungry Got a dozen mouths to feed He asked for money for a bus Pass him a, a hard piece I throw him a dollar It's exactly what he needs to get Another jug of Thunderbird And I change, but he asked me for a Last cigarette, last cigarette Last cigarette one before I go to bed Last cigarette Last cigarette Last cigarette One before I go to bed Welcome back. This is Interchange and our show is Roll Jim Crow with author and historian Nan Enstadt. For our final segment, we'll talk about bright leaf tobacco in China and how the British American Tobacco Company created a kind of Jim Crow culture of debt and sharecropping. Let me ask a quick Monopoly question. Uh, sure. Not the game Monopoly. Not the I was going to. So when you were talking about the process of, you know, Brightleaf and uh, people beginning to farm it themselves and, and sell it and manage their uh, their own little, again, small holdings uh, and surviving that way or growing that way. These are like lives in a in a in a market, not a market, in an activity, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that that can be done locally and in a small way. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas, you know, the classic monopolies that pop into my head are like railroad, uh, sure. you know, these massive infrastructure yeah. situation, even oil, which can be wildcatted now because there are technologies yeah. that people can own and manage themselves at sm- in small companies. They still this still happens. You know, they're fracking wildcatters everywhere now. Yeah. But at the time, these are massive infrastructure. 
infrastructure projects that certain wealthy people then are able to sort of manage and hold and 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 take over mm-hmm. because you can't compete right you've got you can't have a new railroad company come in right, right. so uh, but it does make sense in this space you know how monopoly operates or how monopoly becomes the thing the greedy thing that eats everything up because mm-hmm. it, it does take like it's a Walmart situation right where Walmart comes in and all the the small stores go away right they don't buy them up they just you know, erase their capacity to right. to actually have people come in and buy things from them. Right. But um, I was just thinking, you know, that that maybe that's um, like I don't know if there are other monopolies made that way. You know, uh-huh. they sort of t- t- take over from from people doing local business. Um, and then Walmart popped into my head because I think local businesses go away sure. because of Walmart. But right. uh, that people actually stop having the capacity to farm right. a product. Right. They still need the farmers. Um, they right. just uh, but they don't. But they have more power over how much they pay them, right. Um, right? Because there's fewer buyers. I mean, I think your point about monopoly is a really, really good one. And I actually have never thought about it that way. You know, I've never thought about how is that, how is this product really different? Because it is pretty conducive. the The industry was getting bigger, kind of um, naturally. Like the the people who were farm, like first people farmed and manufactured on the same plot of land because they didn't have any capital mm-hmm. after the Civil War. Um, and so they'd create little manufacturing and then they'd sell it themselves. But over time, you know, it quickly developed into some people were manufacturing and buying the tobacco from other people who were farming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those manufacturing, those factories got bigger. And there are some people who argue, I think persuasively, that the tariff system in the United States at the time, and I'm not going to be able to explain you the details, um, are really um, such that there's a push towards companies getting bigger. You, you, you do better if you're bigger mm-hmm. at this time. So companies themselves are getting bigger. Um, and that seems to be a somewhat of a natural process. Some companies are failing, other companies are succeeding. Um, and so that's not, and some of them are selling overseas, right? Mm-hmm. They're not, it's not a, just a little craft oriented thing. They're, they're, they're really quite there, but there's still hundreds of them. And some of, and I would say dozens of them are getting national and international kinds of markets. Um, and so what the American Tobacco Company does is something a little bit different from that natural process of kind of getting bigger and developing in that it used, ta- it, it was using tactics that were perceived at the time to be destroying competition, mm-hmm. that people, people had anti-monopoly laws to try to prevent it. Right. And I, I kind of wanted to jump in with this um, because in the 19th century, like you said, well, this is what your perception of competition is. I think it's very similar to mine and kind of how I've thought about it. But in the 19th century, um, people didn't see it that way at all. Mm-hmm. People saw com- they, people saw competition as good because it would produce a better product, right? right. right? And it also would produce a healthier economy mm-hmm. because if you had competition, then people were developing more economic, what we call now economic linkages, sure. you know, and developing. So the philosophy, uh, to me, one of the things that this book was so good for me for is that it kind of looking at how people thought really differently about mm. the economy at different times. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much to say mm-hmm. they were right, because I think a lot of the things that they said in the 19th century wouldn't work today. Mm. Right. But it's mind mind opening to um, to think about that mm-hmm. for me. Mm. 
Let's walk into the economics of, of debt, which is a big mm-hmm. part of how it works yeah. in China as well, yeah. and, and, and sharecropping right. as, as well, kind of a template. The Reconstruction and Jim Crow era, they were, um, Southerners became sort of masters of debt mm. um, because they figured out how to um, – the, their big task was to figure out how to take slaves who uh, now were freed, but actually as slaves had all the – agricultural skill. Right. We think of agricultural labor as unskilled, mm-hmm. but right. But it's really, that's because we live in cities, <laughs> right. you know, right. and especially bright leaf tobacco was skilled labor because you had to, you couldn't just pr- get the seed, wouldn't mm. just produce the right leaf wherever you planted it. Right. It had to be planted in the right soil. You had to really do some kind of genetic mm. uh, work to create a good seed of bright leaf. Um, and then it had to be tended. They call it a 13 month crop because it, oh. It get it has it's very labor intensive and you have to know what to do when mm-hmm. in terms of topping and everything. Um, and then the curing process is very specific and very very persnickety. So you have to know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's almost certainly true, um, though it's not documented, that African Americans were the ones who developed that curing process and really developed bright leaf mm-hmm. um, because they were the ones who were working the crop. Right. Smoked my last cigarette. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Nan Enstad, and our show is Roll Jim Crow, about the very intentional practice of white supremacy by the corporate managers of the American Tobacco Company, and how, via corporate imperialism, that same racial project found expression in countries all over the world, most notably China. Cigarette, cigarette. And so with tobacco, as with rice, as with cotton, the the task for whites after the Civil War was figure out how do I get all this skill out of this population right. without letting them become white collar, right? Without letting them enter the middle right. class or become landowners. Right. Right, right, and right. so they did that by by producing a debt situation mm-hmm. um, with sharecropping. And so when I saw how they were taking, then they, they created a bright leaf growing program in China. They ended up getting about 2 million, especially uh, eventually 2 million Chinese farmers were growing bright leaf tobacco. Um, and they had to create a system for that when they got to China. They couldn't just hand out seed because it's a very, a very particular process. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to convince farmers who didn't have much capital that they wanted to grow bright leaf tobacco. Mm-hmm. So they did that by – they couldn't just use sharecropping partly because too many Chinese farmers actually owned their own land. Mm. So uh, – but they, they didn't make them – middle class because they didn't own enough land. They owned a tiny little parcel of land. Mm -hmm. So, but then, and some were tenants. So there was no, there was no uniform kind of status, Mm. um, of tenancy in China. So they couldn't just use sharecropping, but they, so they designed a totally different system. Um, and, uh, what they, what Chinese farmers were starting to shift to needing more cash in the, in the countryside because they started to need to pay taxes. Oh, okay. And they also, there was, uh, there was, now there was oil to buy and yarn to buy and more commodities. So they wanted, ca- they were cash hungry. Hmm. Um, they were also cash hungry in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what British American Tobacco Company did, um, that other companies couldn't do in China, um, is they offered cash for the product at gotcha. the end of the year and very many other, um, you know, Chinese companies that were buying up these uh, products from farmers who were who were producing for the market would sometimes produce would sometimes uh, pay in installments would sometimes 
barter and pay with food, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and so British American Tobacco came in and said, we'll give you this big bundle of cash when you finish. Mm. Um, and that enticed people in. But then they said, but there's all kinds of tools that you need in order to produce Brightleaf. Mm. You need to buy seeds. You need to buy um, especially curing pipes mm. and build a curing barn. It was very expensive to mm. buy, to produce Brightleaf. Indebted to the inputs. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that's how they set it up. They created a system gotcha. of debt where they had to buy, borrow um, no, to like, like farmers it. do now. I mean, if, I mean, still, right. it's still, still that way, right? You, exactly. You borrow your on your inputs to hopefully have crop to pay. Exactly. <laughs> to pay for your inputs. Right. 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 <laughs> and they also got. Uh, they also instead of loaning directly from the company, and I thought this was very clever, and and to me seemed like Jim Crow. Instead of renting directly to the farmer from the company, that um, they worked in. They went would go into these localities and work with local gentry, mm. so that they'd get local gentry to do the loaning. And so local people were making money off of these, mm. um, the brightly farming. Right. So the local gentry that might have otherwise not had any reason to be allied with mm -hmm. the company and support, it, yeah. and support it and it actually was undermining them in certain ways, right? right? Were convinced to ally mm -hmm. with the company, which is very similar to how whites were being kind of manipulated in the mm -hmm. South. It's fascinating. Yeah. So it's, you also go into quite a bit of, of how uh, the, I guess the BAT management or upper management um, had, you know, a servant class as well yeah. and how they treated servant class there too. And letters from, you know, comparing black servants to Chinese servants and the ways that they do and don't do work and how they uh, act in certain ways. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. It's, yeah. Again, the, the white owner class uh, is, is an impressive, it's an impressive thing. Yeah. That's history from below of the white owner class oh, turned out to be very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I found this cache of letters at Eastern Carolina University mm. Um, in their archive um, that were from Hattie Gregory mm. who to her cousin and mother and other people at home in North Carolina. She was in China. She was married to Henry Gregory, who was in, the, in charge of the agricultural program mm. in China. Um, and they were both from the tobacco region of North Carolina, and they had been part of that whole network of white guys, mm -hmm. uh, white people that were doing the same work in, in North Carolina as they were in China. So she went over um, and set up a very fancy executive home for her husband in mm -hmm. China. And it was very interesting to see the day-to-day -day of how she was supporting a corporate culture um, and an imperial culture, right, mm -hmm. in Shanghai in the interwar period. So her daily letters home became, you know, um, a really great source for me. As you said, she mm -hmm. talked about what what they were eating, how she had a whole group of servants. She said, I, th um, she said, I think that the women who are from the South here do better, hmm. um, with the servants because they know how to manage servants from their mm -hmm. time in, mm -hmm. in the South, whether sure. they have African American servants. So she was very literally trying to apply right. the, what she knew from Jim Crow in the South to creating a corporate home. That was anchoring business. They had business events there on a weekly basis. So it was really anchoring kind of the corporate culture in Shanghai. Smoked my last cigarette, sat in bed for a while. Thought of your face and that brought me a smile.
That's our show. We'll close with Cigarette by The Smithereens off of the 1986 album Especially For You. Thanks to Nan Enstad for joining us to discuss the negative impact of cigarettes and of the Jim Crow corporate structure embodied by the American Tobacco Company and its partners across the world. And again, thanks to WORT, Community Radio in Madison, Wisconsin, for letting us use their studios to record this interview. And thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Only one hour till you're leaving this town Went to the corner store Bought us another pack Held my own